Well, good morning, everybody. Nice to see you. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Rachel. I'm actually a different Rachel to the one who spoke a couple of weeks ago. It's funny how many compliments I've had for her talk. Even someone this morning said, really enjoyed your talk the other week about women. So that wasn't actually me, but yes, she's great. <laughs> so I don't know if they also think you're married to Matt, but there we go. <laughs> we do have very similar hair, I suppose. So today I'm going to be talking about how we can be faithful to God with the things that we hold in our hands. Today's passage from Luke seems like a tricky one in some ways. It certainly threw up a few questions for me when I was preparing for this talk. A rich man's manager has been wasting his boss's money. He's found out and told that he's going to be fired. He then has a short window of time before he needs to report back what he's done with his boss's money. But instead of that, he uses the last few days in his job to act in his own interest. He thinks ahead, I'll do something so that when I lose my job, people will welcome me into their homes. He then goes on to reduce the debts of his master's debtors to ingratiate himself with them so that they will then help him out later on when he loses his job and therefore his house and income, because often in those days your house was tied with your job. But it is a surprising story for Jesus to be telling. The real surprise, though, is in the master's reaction. Well, we expect him to be furious, I certainly do, but then in verse 8 we hear that he commends the dishonest manager because he has acted shrewdly. A man being praised for cheating his boss out of money, it seems an unusual story for Jesus to be making a point with. It's worth saying at the beginning, though, that I think he still gets what's coming to him, he may benefit later on from the debtors taking him in when he loses his job, but I think we're still meant to understand that he got fired. His boss might have admired his cunning in some way, but it doesn't say that he kept his job. And he had lost the owner a great deal of money over many years, and with the last actions while he's in his job, he certainly isn't showing any signs of changing. So I believe that he did still lose his job, and therefore his means of providing for himself. When I was four or five, I tricked my brother into swapping coins with me, telling him that my 50p was worth more than his pound coin because it was bigger. My parents might have been secretly amused by this, but I was still in trouble and made to swap them back. Our misdemeanors will always catch up with us. We're not told how um, the manager has wasted his master's money in the past. Perhaps he hasn't invested it well. Some suggest he might have been stealing from him. But his question is now, how can he provide for his future? He knows it will be impossible to take anything with him when he leaves the estate, so pocketing the cash isn't going to work. It's interesting, though, that while he continues to use his master's money to benefit himself, this time he does it by reducing the debts of his master's debtors, and that's the shrewd part. Firstly, I want to talk about what this passage has to say about how we should be faithful with the money and the belongings we hold in our hands. In this passage, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and us something about how to use our money for God's purposes. Like the dishonest manager, we can't take anything with us when we leave this earth. This man is concerned with his earthly future, and he does that by using his money to make friends. Jesus counsels us that likewise, instead of storing up our wealth, saving for our earthly future, 
that we should use our worldly wealth, our finances, to gain friends for ourselves, so that when the money's gone, we'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He means heaven. Jesus is saying that we need help with our eternal future, and that's where our focus should be. Does it seem strange to you that Jesus would tell us to use our money to make friends? What I think he's telling us is to use our money to create relationships and friendships, not for our gain, like the dishonest manager, but for God's purposes. What Jesus means is for us to use our money to meet other people's needs. Because God loves to see people helping each other, his children showing love in action. Jesus is encouraging us to be shrewd with our finances by investing in people's lives. So let's use our resources to do as much good as we can for the glory of God and the eternal good of others. Because our use of money here will be rewarded in heaven, gaining us an eternal and a secure future. We can be wise and shrewd by using our money to invest in that. Jesus is trying to change how we see our finances and belongings. He's trying to raise our eyes from a merely earthly perspective where our earthly comfort and well-being are temporary, where money can fail and where it can't be taken with us. And he's trying to give us a more heavenly perspective to see that our possessions and wealth can be used to invest in an eternal future where we're going to have a permanent home and an inheritance that doesn't fade. It's worth noting that the people the dishonest manager helps are not wealthy people. They are debtors. The dishonest manager isn't depending on their riches, but on the relationship of mutual dependence that he's built with them. Building these friendships is a way for him to gain security for his uncertain future. But we don't need to worry about our future like he did, because God is totally trustworthy, and he always provides for his children. Since we can trust God to provide for our needs, then we can generously meet the needs of other people without worrying about our own. When I was a student, I felt prompted by God to give a friend 20 pounds. I knew that he wasn't well off. I was embarrassed to just give it to him, so just before I left his house, I hid it under a lampshade in his hallway and hoped that he'd find it sooner rather than later. When he did find it, he was really grateful. But he said he wanted to pay me back, and I said, please don't. I feel like God just wants you to have the money. I wasn't expecting to get it back. The way to be faithful with the money that we hold in our hands is to regularly ask God who or what he wants us to spend it on. That way, we'll ensure that he is our master and not our money. It's therefore about surrendering control of our finances to God. Since everything ultimately comes from him, we're therefore willingly putting it at his disposal. Being faithful to him with our finances or our belongings might mean giving someone something without expecting it back or taking someone out for lunch or a coffee or dinner and paying the bill without expecting the favour to be returned. Let's be listening out for those whispered, whispered promptings from God. Surrendering control means trusting that God will provide so that we know we don't need to focus too much on stockpiling money either for our future or our children's future comfort. We do need those things, they are important, but working to obtain that money itself must not become our end goal. Let's instead pour our energies not into securing an earthly future 
and forgetting, sorry, let's not pour our energies into securing an earthly future and forget to store up treasures in heaven for our eternal future. One commentator I read said, if only we were as shrewd in our dealings with the kingdom of God as we were with making ends meet, imagine the spiritual possibilities. And that really struck me. I'm just going to read it once more. If only we were as shrewd in our dealings with the kingdom of God as we were with making ends meet, imagine the spiritual possibilities. One difficulty we tend to have with this passage is whether Jesus is also commending the steward for being dishonest, like his manager, um, his boss, seemed to. Although Jesus uses the shrewdness or the cunning of that man's actions to make a point, I don't believe that he's in any way commending or encouraging dishonesty, because he goes on to say that on the contrary, if we're untrustworthy with other people's things, we won't be trusted with things of our own, and if we're not trustworthy with earthly wealth, we won't be trusted with the true riches of heaven. Honesty is essential if we're going to follow Jesus and seek to live like him. Elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells the disciples to be as cunning as snakes, but as innocent as doves. I think in this passage, Jesus is also encouraging us to be shrewd and cunning with our finances, but always whilst maintaining integrity and innocence. So we're thinking this morning about how to be faithful with what we have in our hands, and the first passage is very much focused on how we use our money, but we hold many other things in our hands other than just money. We have time at our disposal, we have talents and abilities and our experiences, and all of these things can be used for God's purposes too. If you're unsure what your abilities are, what you might have been given, can I recommend to you the Shapes course um, that Jeff Jowett is running? Him and Matt ran the first Shapes course in January, and I think the group that were on it really benefited from it, and the next course is going to be starting at the end of April. The, the basis of the course is that God has made us all uniquely to fulfill his plans and purposes for us, and the course is a great way for you to see the shape that God has made you, the abilities you've got, and the passions and experiences for the purpose that he has for you. In our second passage from Genesis, we see that God had a particular plan for Joseph and had given him the ability to interpret dreams for this very reason. Joseph is faithful to God with the abilities he's been given. Just as a recap, by this point in the story, Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers. He's been hired by an Egyptian, but then imprisoned unfairly, accused by the Egyptian's wife of something he didn't do. He's then good to his fellow prisoners. He again interprets dreams while he's in prison. But then when one of them gets released, he's forgotten about and left behind. After all this hardship, Joseph could have become disillusioned and felt that God had forgotten him too. He could have turned his back on God and the faith that he's grown up with. But he doesn't. Instead, he's still faithful to God and he uses the opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dream as an opportunity to teach him something about God's power and character. Earlier in the chapter, Joseph tells Pharaoh, it is beyond my power to do this, to interpret the dream, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. Even though he's been mistreated in Egypt, 
He interprets the dream and then he goes on, as we heard, to serve Pharaoh faithfully with his other abilities, his talent for leadership and wisdom to save the Egyptian people. And later on, um, we read, even the neighboring nations come to get grain from Egypt. Because he's faithful to use his time and his talent in this way, he also is then a key player in sustaining God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. How do we serve God with our time and our talents, though? Maybe you use yours in your place of work, in your home, in your school, with brownies, rainbows, scouts, or in your church. It's seemingly easy to do when things are going well, but what about when, like Joseph, we've been treated unfairly or falsely accused or forgotten? But even when people don't appreciate us, God does. Let's ask him where we can be using the abilities he's given us. Let's maintain a perspective that wherever we're working, we are ultimately serving God and seek to do the best we can in all areas of life, just like the Bible says, as if we were working for God and not for man. As I was preparing for this talk, I kept thinking of the Brian Adams song, Everything I Do, I Do It For You. Everything we do, we do for God first. Every person we're kind to, every person we encourage, every time we give generously, every task we complete at work, every deadline we meet, every rota we serve on at church, in everything we do, we do it for God. And in that way, we're investing in his kingdom. People may come to know God because of the integrity that you show at work. People may ask about your faith because they see how it impacts on everything you do. God's kingdom will grow. Um, years ago, um, when the kids were little and actually uh, while I was pregnant with Anna, we were sitting in a restaurant in America and the man on the table next to me commented on my necklace. And then a few minutes later, his wife arrived at the table and he pointed it out again to her and complimented it again. And a few weeks before that, I'd heard a sermon on generosity where the speaker had encouraged us to be generous with our things as well as our money. And in that moment, I felt that I should give this necklace to the lady but I was embarrassed because we were there with my sister and her family. I waited and I took the opportunity. When the lady got up to go to the bathroom, I followed her and I waited outside the bathroom to give it to her. I explained that I was a Christian and that God wanted me to give her this necklace that I really liked, by the way. Um, and so I gave it to her. And do you know, she was so overwhelmed, she cried. She was just so shocked that somebody would want to give away one of their belongings to her. And then when I got back to the table, my sister said, did you just give that lady your necklace? Like she'd noticed anyway, even though I snuck off to do it. Um, I don't know exactly what impact this had on my sister or on the lady that I gave the necklace to, but I acted out of obedience to a prompting of the Holy Spirit. And I think in those moments, all we can do is then leave it to God for him to do the rest. And he will bring what he wants to out of our generosity. The final thing I think we can be faithful with is our experiences. Joseph says later on in Genesis, what you, speaking to his brothers, meant for harm, God intended for good. God brings good things out of bad situations. Mothering Sunday always causes me to reflect on the blessing of our children and our two, mine and Matt's, wonderful mothers. But it can be a hard day too for some of us. Some of us carry grief that makes the celebration of today difficult to endure. 
There's the grief of losing a mother, maybe, or not knowing your mother, of losing a child or being estranged from your child, or perhaps even the grief of never building the family you long for. On this day, I find myself remembering a child that I never got to meet. In between Abby's birth and Zach's birth, I had a miscarriage. And we'd spent several months wanting a sibling for Abby and the disappointment month on month of negative tests. And then finally, it was positive. We were overjoyed. But then weeks later, I started to bleed. And although I prayed and I hoped that things were going to be okay, when I went for the scan a few days later, the baby hadn't made it. You wonder what good can come out of our suffering. And as I share my experience, though, I find then other women contacting me wanting to talk about theirs. I think there's a tendency with grief to kind of store it away in case it upsets people. You know, we don't want to be melancholy or offend people. Perhaps we think they won't want to listen. But grief needs to be shared. And I think we can be faithful with our experiences in this way to share them with others. And when I open up about my experience, I found it then allows other people to, to approach me as one who will understand and listen. And on more than one occasion, ladies have told me, sorry, ladies who've never told anyone about their miscarriage have wanted to talk about it with me. So your experiences might lead you to start or help with a support group, to join one of our ministries at church or our pastoral team, or like me, maybe to be vulnerable enough to speak out so that others know that they don't suffer alone. Over the years, I've also struggled with my mental health. And when things have got really bad, I've wondered why on earth God has allowed me to go through it and what he can do with these kinds of struggles. But he can and he does bring good things out of them. When I've used my experience to give workshops on mental health or to talk, you know, just to share and talk about my own experience, it's then enabled other people to feel like they can offload. And more importantly, I've been able to witness to the one thing that has got me through those particularly dark times, the God who is always by my side, who never leaves me. And then I've been able to pray with them or for them and see healing take place. And it made me think that even if what we hold in our hands may seem bad, God can use it for good. So let's surrender to God our finances, our time, our abilities, and our experiences, and ask him how he wants to use them to advance his kingdom.